Welcome to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, the show for those who care to be aware about the national security and foreign policy issues facing our country. I'm your host, Connor Bolanos, also the host of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on the station, and I'm joined in the studio today by my wonderful producer, Kendall Doerr. Today, we're going to talk about something that really frustrates me, I guess you could say, and that's going to be the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy has been, you could say, the staple and perhaps one of the most principal tools of American foreign policy and national security. And this has been the case since 1890, when Alfred Mahan wrote The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. And this work really cemented the idea in the American mindset of the importance of the Navy. Now, let's just take a global image for a second. America is a nation that's not surrounded necessarily by threats to it that come will come from land. Canada and Mexico are both allies, and even if they were enemies, they don't possess militaries capable of rivaling the United States. Our rivals are those, since basically World War I and World War II, those on the continents of Europe, and today, those primarily in Asia. And because of that, the U.S. has largely been considered to kind of be this island. And as a result of that, we've really put an emphasis since World War I, World War II, on naval power. And even in the modern day and age, naval power has been, since America took over the role of kind of the leader of this liberal world order, uh, carrier strike groups, of which the U.S. operates 11, 10 from within the United States, one which is forward deployed in Japan, the carrier strike group has been a principal tool of American military might around the world. Whenever there's an issue in the Persian Gulf, it's a carrier strike group that's sent to deploy there. Whenever there is trouble going on in the Indo-Pacific, it's a carrier strike group that's sent out there to remind nations that the United States is present. And it's these carrier strike groups in the U.S. Navy that is really meant to, in a lot of ways, be the first line of defense, but also in in a sense, the first line of attack if the United States ever needs it in these foreign countries. But despite this important role of the Navy and the importance of the Navy, especially as nations like China really build up their navies and pose threats to allies such as Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea, the U.S. Navy finds itself in an ever-increasing state of disrepair, uh, lack of new actual vessels, under crude, decreased recruitment standards, shipyards that aren't even capable. I think there's like a 40-year backlog on various maintenance repairs for a number of nuclear vessels. I think there's only two shipyards and two dockyards, dry docks, within those shipyards that are even capable of handling or uh, dealing with U.S. nuclear carriers, and even then they're not big enough. So the state of the Navy is really, if you can't tell, something to be that I find to be dismaying and something that I think is worthy of being the first episode of Defense Now, especially as uh, individuals within the Marine Corps are already warning about the Navy's decommission plans for fiscal year 2024. So before we jump into you know some of the issues of the day, let's go over some of the more contextual information regarding the Navy towards the beginning of 2022. Now, this decline in the U.S. Navy isn't necessarily anything new. This has been going on for a few years, and this is something that Congress has identified. A few years ago, Congress had passed a, you could say, congressionally mandated goal for the U.S. to have a 355-ship battle force uh, you know, to be deployed around the world and to be ready to fight America's wars and protect its interests. 
The Navy has actually fallen far short of this, however. The U.S. Navy only has 285 battle force ships, far below this congressional goal. But not only are they far below this, they want to take it even lower. The presidential uh, request for the Department of Defense every year in March, to give some context, the president uh, forwards a budget proposal to Congress. This is, you know, everything from Department of Education, Department of Defense, Department of Energy. Basically, the president gives his own outline of what he wants the fiscal year's budget to be. But for the Department of Defense, he actually forwarded that the Navy only acquires nine ships for fiscal year 2023 while retiring 24 of them, bringing us even further below the 355-ship battle force. And this is coming at a time where a lot of naval experts, former admirals even, are saying that Taiwan, that China is making a move on Taiwan by 2027. And China's not some, you know, unknown and naval threat. If you go back 50 years or so, you could say that China's threat navally was minuscule, right? If we go back to the 1940s, 1950s, the start of the People's Republic of China, their navy was very lackluster. It was a series of basically armed fishing boats, you could say. But China, just a few years ago, produced for the first time its own domestic aircraft carrier, and it's got two more coming on the way. China's also now the most numerically superior navy on the world. That's not to say it's a navy better than the United States. It's just numerically superior to our own. And while we may have quality on our side, quantity is a quality of its own in certain situations. And when we're talking about something like the Taiwan Straits, that may be what China needs in order to gain victory there, not necessarily the quality of things. And so in light of this, and and despite China being the pacing challenge set by the Department of Defense, and despite all these admirals warning, the presidential administration and much of Congress even, if you've seen their proposed NDAs, while they work to attempt to reverse the trend that Biden had proposed, they still don't bring us anywhere near to going to that 355 battle force congressional goal. China's already reached this 355 goal that we haven't even been able to in 2021 when they reached 355 vessels, and they plan by 2030 to reach 460 ships. Based on what I've said so far, you should be able to tell that the U.S. is nowhere near even matching that or is necessarily even in a position to start matching that. You could even say that the under the current attitude of the current administration, they don't even want to reverse that trend. The Secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, in a hearing before one of the House Appropriations Committees on Defense, had said that the president's budget, the one that had nine ship procurements but 24 uh, ship retirements, said that the budget fitted the strategic and security needs of the United States, paraphrasing obviously, but that's roughly what he said. And he also placed greater emphasis on fixing issues of climate change rather than actually national defense. Now, say what you will about whether or not climate change is, you know, a national security threat. Perhaps true, perhaps not. But in either circumstance, I feel that the Chinese threat to Taiwan and other national interests possibly happening by 2027 is more important than spending the next decade or so focusing instead on sustainable fuels. But this is not a problem that's just simple to solve. A Heritage Foundation report says that we need to sustain a procurement of no fewer than 15 manned warships through 2028 to at minimum course correct and reach the current congressionally mandated goal of 355 ships. But we should probably be going beyond this. Keep in mind, China's aiming for 460 by 2030. And this isn't necessarily a Navy that we can just shrug at. It is, these days, a more advanced fighting force than it was back in the 60s, the 70s, or even the 80s. Is it on par with the U.S. Navy in terms of quality ship for ship? Probably not, but it is not something that should be discounted. And given that 
U.S. naval admirals, the Department of Defense have all identified China as a pacing threat. We really should be putting a lot more emphasis onto this. And Congress really should be looking to do a lot more than just sustain a procurement of 15 ships a year. We should be going above that. But I applaud the works of Congress so far, especially in the House and Senate, of at least attempting to reverse the retirement of the vessels that the Navy was proposing to at least keep those numbers up slightly. For all of you just tuning in, welcome to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about the declining state of the Navy and the era of great power competition, especially under the proposed fiscal year 2023 budget. And now we're going to jump into why this is a hard trend to reverse. We had just said that we need a procurement of roughly 15 or so warships to at least course correct and reach 355 ships. But this isn't necessarily all that needs to be done in order to truly restore the Navy to the state it needs to be in to handle a new era of great power competition in the world. And the reason for this is one that I had referenced earlier, the shipyards. There are 22 private U.S. shipyards in the country that perform all the shipbuilding and ship repair for the Navy. However, there are four Navy shipyards owned by the government that are solely responsible for the maintenance of American nuclear uh, carriers, nuclear submarines, and other nuclear naval vessels. And broadly speaking, there's a couple of issues underlying here that make this reversing I guess you could say, of the of the decline in the number of uh, American ships, a problem. First off, as is a trend in many factories and vocational trades across the country, there's just not many people signing up to be welders or uh, electrical engineers or other sorts of positions that you need in the shipyard to actually make the ship. And so what's happened is that you've had numerous private shipyards across the country, even the government-owned shipyards, attempting to attract new talent with additional benefits, pensions, and other attractive wages, but it just really hasn't worked out. And that's, you know, America's really been transitioning to more of a white-collar kind of uh, country. And, you know, whether, how you can necessarily reverse that, whether that's a good or bad thing is an entirely different question. But what is relevant to us is the fact that the na- the shipyards aren't able to keep up with the orders that they're being given. And it's hard to say that they could keep up with increased procurement simply because of this reduced amount of labor that they have to work with. And this is not to mention the topic that I mainly want to get into, which is the disrepair of these shipyards and the inadequacy of them to even fit the ships of the modern day. At its height, the U.S. operated 11 government shipyards for the Navy at Norfolk, Portsmouth, Puget Sound, Pearl Harbor, Long Beach, Charleston, Mare Island, Philadelphia, Boston, San Francisco, New York, Pensacola, and Washington. Today, they operate only four, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Puget Sound, and Pearl Harbor. Most of these were all built and have barely been renovated since they were initially constructed. Norfolk was created in 1767, Portsmouth in 1800, Puget Sound in 1901, and Pearl Harbor in 1908. Now, obviously, these, a number of these have been renovated since they f- were first constructed. I'm not trying to say that they haven't. If they weren't, for example, Norfolk would have only been able to build wooden ships and wouldn't be anywhere capable of handling a aircraft carrier. But they have been renovated. But the main point is that they really haven't been renovated, retrofitted, or expanded since post-World War II and during the Cold War. Many of these newer shipyards that were built around the time of the Cold War or were built uh, earlier in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, were closed, though, during a series of closures in the mid to late 1900s. We had four shipyards closed between 1996 and 1997 of the BRAC Commission closures, and we had three more between 1966 and 1974 as part of a series of Cold War closures. 
So because of this, what we're left with today is four Navy shipyards that have too few functional dry docks with facilities and equipment that are too old and too poorly configured to handle the tasks of the modern day. And as a result, submarine and carrier maintenance is frequency delayed, resulting in various ships getting trapped in dry dock for months or weeks on end, resulting in fewer ships available for naval operations during a time of heightened tensions and great power competition. To put that in some firmer numbers, the Navy, in its shipyard infrastructure optimization plan, also called PSYOP, which we'll talk about in a few minutes here, the plan found out that the Navy shipyards will be unable to accommodate 68 of the total maintenance availabilities required between 2019 and 2040. And just to kind of circle back on this to give you some more figures again, there's only two docks in the entirety of the country that can service nuclear aircraft carriers. Dock number eight in Norfolk and dock number six at Puget Sound. And not only are these the only two dry docks capable of servicing aircraft carriers, they can only service Nimitz class aircraft carriers. There's no dry dock that's actually capable of servicing the U.S.'s newest class, the Gerald Ford, even though it was commissioned back in 2017. While it can fit inside the dock, it does not. there's not the equipment there necessary to actually service the aircraft carrier. How exactly it's going to get serviced, given that there's not really the equipment to do, to do so, we'll have to find out when the Gerald Ford goes in for its first uh, uh, nuclear uh, maintenance. But I guess that's a problem that they'll have to figure out in the coming years. But it's certainly one that they don't have an answer to right now. For all of you just tuning in, welcome to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about the state of our shipyards and how that makes it difficult for the U.S. to even reverse the course on shipyard procurement. But there is some hope, and let's talk about that right now. And that hope has manifested in the form of the Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Program, also known as PSYOP. The PSYOP is the efforts of the Navy to improve its four public shipyards. This 20-year effort, which began in 20. 18, costing an estimated $21 billion at the time, has sought to modernize, expand the dry docks in these various facilities, and bring them up to speed in order to match procurement and to match U.S. nuclear maintenance. The issue, however, there are a few issues. First off, PSYOP is a carefully planned program. Considering that there are only, for example, two aircraft carrier dry docks in existence, if one of the constructions for these kind of falls off schedule, right, you'll see delays in the ability of that dry dock to actually manage those aircraft carriers. And so if anything happens during this construction plan to many of these dry docks, many of which are the only dry dock capable of servicing a particular type of craft, you could see even further maintenance delays. But should PSYOP be successful in the coming years, the Navy thinks it can make up 67 of those 68 uh, missed maintenances. And the U.S. Government Accountability Office has seen improvement in three of the four shipyards since the plan began in 2017. And while detailed investment plans for each shipyard won't actually be able to be done until fiscal year 2025, three years late, this is pretty you know, standard, I guess you could say, for defense spending. Usually, and government in general, things usually aren't on time, as I'm sure many of you who are listening know. Um, however, the biggest issue is that the estimated cost for modernizing three of the 17 dry docks grew by $4 billion. And this is just out of that $21 billion total, and that's just for three of these 17 dry docks. And so it's expected that the costs for PSYOP will balloon in the coming years, especially under inflation, which was, I think, at a high of 9. 2% over the summer. And while it has seen a decline, it's still pretty high. And I think in the coming years, you're going to really see the cost of the SIEP program balloon. 
But it's nonetheless an important program, and it's a program that the Navy is committed to doing, and it's a program that the House and the Senate and the President have all also committed to doing. I believe that both the executive proposal for the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Senate's Armed Services Committee fully funds PSYOP, and the House bill that for the NDAA for fiscal year 2023 also fully funded PSYOP. So at the end of the day, when it comes at least to the shipyards, there is hope that they can be redeemed because this is an issue that the Navy has identified, has aimed to solve, and which Congress has fully supported in its endeavors. However, as we discussed earlier, the issue of ship procurement to begin with, however, is still an issue and perhaps one that Congress and perhaps the administration is not yet ready to pursue. But it is a change that nonetheless needs to be done. But it's a challenge that I can understand as, you know, to why people don't necessarily want to work on expanding ship procurement, especially when we've had in the past uh, troubled procurement, like, for example, the USS Zumwalt. The USS Zumwalt is the epitome and always the constant example of naval overspending gone wrong. This ship costing nearly $8 billion a ship, which is far more than almost any other ship for its class and for its intended purpose, with a each round of its main guns costing $800,000 to fire. The ship literally cannot fire because the Navy cannot acquire the ammunition for it. And I think it broke down to in the Panama Canal when it was first being sent from its where it was initially constructed to San Diego. And so when you have cases like this, I can see why Congress, you know, is hesitant to procure new ships, especially when there's ballooning costs, when we're in a time of rising debt. But I want what I like to remind people is that we are in an era of great power competition, an era of great power competition that we probably have not seen since the Cold War. The Cold War ended, and even in the Cold War, the Soviet Union did not necessarily have the Navy we did. But China possesses a navy that is very capable, perhaps of not projecting power across the world, but very capable of projecting power in its local region, in the first island chain, around Japan, around South Korea, and around Taiwan. All nations with which the U.S. has good relations, has deals, trade agreements, security agreements, and overall national interest. And so given that, even though the Navy is seeing reduced procurement, and while there is thankfully an increased uh, attention towards PSYOP and the shipyard Navy infrastructure, the United States really needs to begin focusing on additional procurement and on really continuing and putting support behind the PSYOP program in order to create a Navy that the United States can use to aptly defend the nation's interests and also defend our allies around the world in an ever-increasing age of great power competition. Thank you all for tuning in to the first episode of Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, the show for those who care to be aware about the national security issues and foreign policy issues facing our country. Join us in two weeks as we discuss yet another foreign policy and national security topic that our nation faces. 